Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John, the 19th chapter. We will be, again, looking at John's Gospel and learning the truths that are contained in this Gospel as the Spirit inspired John to write these things down nearly 2,000 years ago so that we could have them today. So we're going to be looking in chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Now last week we talked about the crucifixion. This is going to be part two of the crucifixion, though it's going to include the burial of Jesus because we're going to see that all of this is a package deal. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that is of utmost importance. We're going to look at that today in a message entitled, A Demonstration of True Faith After Christ's Death. Um, This is important as we look at the burial of Christ directly after the death on the cross of Christ. It's important that we examine the burial because so many times it's often overlooked. Many people want to go from the crucifixion to the grave to the resurrection, and they miss an important element. And I don't want you to miss that important element this morning. Neither did John, neither does the Holy Spirit who inspired John to write these things in detail so that we can have them. And we know this again that John writes these things so that we would believe. And so we look at these things this morning in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, which we are very familiar with, I hope, at this time in our Christian walks. But it says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We saw that last week over and over again. We saw that every little detail, intricate detail that we saw of the crucifixion was according to to Scripture, even things that we haven't even considered before, was according to the Scripture. He goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so today what we're going to do, we are going to examine the burial of Jesus Christ. But more specifically, as I have been going through John with you, I have spoken to you of the details that oftentimes we just read through and take no time to analyze those details. Why would John include this, and why would he include it here? And you always have to ask yourself this when you see something in Scripture, why is this important? How many of you would agree that every word and every sentence and every punctuation mark in Scripture is important? And so because it's here, we have to look at these things and we have to ask ourselves these questions. What does this mean? What is he teaching us here and what is he saying? And what we're going to do today is we're going to see that he is going to highlight two specific people in this text. He is going to highlight Joseph of Arimathea and he is going to highlight Nicodemus. We know little about both of these characters, these people. We know little about them. But I want us to take what we do know in light of what we're going to see today, and I want us to see exactly what is going on here. Why would John take so much time in these five verses to draw us a a detailed picture of exactly what these men did for Christ after his crucifixion? And you're going to see there is great, great importance to what they did and how they did it. So we look at Joseph of Arimathea. Again, not much is known. Uh, We know this. He was rich. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 makes that very clear. He was a rich man. In fact, he was a rich enough man to own a garden that would own a tomb that he could lend to Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. But he was a rich man among the Jews. And we know this, that in Mark chapter 15, verse 43, we know that Scripture tells us this about Joseph of Arimathea, that he was awaiting the kingdom of God. He was actually looking for the Messiah. Now, we know this about the other religious leaders of the day. Though they pretended to be looking for the Messiah, they were all about themselves. They were self-seeking, and they were self-serving 
only pretending to really want the Messiah. They knew this, that if Messiah was to come, and he did, but they knew that if Messiah was to come in the manner that they thought he was to come, they would lose all power and authority, and they did not want that to happen. So we see Joseph of Arimathea. He was different. He was different on the onset. He was awaiting the kingdom of God, and he was one of the Sanhedrin who did not consent to the crucifixion of Christ. We see that in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 51. He did not consent to the crucifixion of Christ. When all the other religious leaders desired to execute Christ, he would not agree. So we know little about him, but we can gather some things from Scripture. Also, the second character that we see, Nicodemus. Now, we know a little bit about Nicodemus from our study in John, or at least I hope you do. How many of you remember back in John chapter 3? Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he came to Jesus at night. John is, is very clear in communicating that. He let us know that in John chapter 3. He's going to reiterate that today, that it was nighttime when Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus the first time. And we know why people use the cover of darkness. They do things in the cover of darkness so that they are not seen. They don't want other people to know what is going on. That's why when the world goes out and they carouse, they don't do it in day clubs. They do it in what? Nightclubs. They carouse during the darkened hours, not in broad daylight. Well, used to. Now, seemingly, people parade their sin as if they're proud of it. But we see that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and it was there in his encounter with the Lord that the Lord gave him his first lesson on sovereign regeneration. And we call that the new birth. Remember he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then down in verse 16, we see that Jesus moved Nicodemus in that conversation from being born again to belief, and that that belief would justify him. We must understand this. A person does not John 3.16 until they are born again, according to John 3, 1 through 15. Many people want to take 16 by itself, but there must be a work of the Spirit. Why? Because Jesus said that there had to be. I don't know about you, but I don't like making a habit of arguing with Jesus. I've tried on several occasions to no avail. And so Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth and that he must be born again, and that that new birth would perceive true belief and faith. Again, meaning that one cannot truly believe until they are sovereignly and monergistically by a work of God born again. I know you are confused about that because many people in error through false teaching, false ideology, have confused you about that. But Jesus' teaching trumps everyone else's teaching. Can we all agree on that? Good. Go back and read John chapter 3. And I, I can promise you this. Jesus is always right. So in John chapter 3, he has an encounter with Jesus at night. And he, we know that he went at night because he was worried about what all of his other Jewish cohorts would think of him. But he had a good question. He wanted to know more about Christ. He said, we know that someone like you, someone like you obviously is from God because of the miracles that you do. Nicodemus had taken note of this. How did he take note of this? Because while others were saying that Jesus was a blasphemer and a Sabbath breaker, God was doing a work in the life of Nicodemus. Nicodemus wanted to talk about those miracles, and Jesus shifted the whole conversation to the greatest miracle, the new birth. And he shifted that on purpose. Because you know what? All of the other miracles are really irrelevant. The greatest miracle of all is the new birth, that God would somehow save a wretched, filthy sinner like Kirk Hall when Kirk Hall did not deserve it, did not even want it, but yet God would sovereignly and graciously intervene in my life and save me. That is a miracle. And so he has this conversation with Nicodemus, and I happen to believe this in light of what we're going to see today. This was the beginning of God really opening Nicodemus' eyes to his need for a Savior. Little did Nicodemus know that the Spirit was already doing a work in his life. What did Jesus tell him? The Spirit's like the wind. You're not going to see the wind necessarily, but you will see the effects of the wind. And in Nicodemus' life today, in the text that we're going to look at, you see the effects of the Spirit in his life. We'll look at that more in detail in just a second. But in chapter 7 of John, in regard to Nicodemus again, there was another conversation. And Nicodemus actually defended Jesus. And when he defended Jesus in 751, uh, 50 through 51, in verse 52, the religious people who wanted to crucify Jesus, they were not 
happy with this, right? They, they actually asked him, are you one of his followers now? Are you part of his team? Have you ever forsaken us for him? Now, at that time, of course, Nicodemus didn't stand up and say, yes, I have, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to follow you any longer because he was still gripped with fleshly and human fear. But as we're going to see today, there was already a work of God that was going on in his life. We're going to see that come to further fruition today as we examine this text. But obviously, in light of this, both of these men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were obviously different than the other religious leaders of the day. How do I know this? Because I'm going to read this text in a second, and the other religious leaders of the day just left Jesus' dead body laying there on the ground, took no care of it at all. They didn't really concern themselves with what happened to him. They just wanted him gone. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did something totally different. I believe this, as we examine John's gospel of this account, as we look at the death, now looking at the burial of Jesus, I submit that the difference in these two men were that these two men, though at one time they were secretly believers and followers of Christ, they were in fact true followers of Christ, and that's going to be proven by their lives. So we can examine the details, and we're going to, surrounding these guys. And we can see very quickly that their role in the burial, burial of Jesus Christ demonstrates for the first time their true and outward faith and love for Christ. So my objective today is to do that. It's for us to examine this example given to us by John of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, not only so that we can come to a conclusion that they were believers, because I think you can come to that conclusion, but so that we can examine our lives and look to see if our claim to faith is an authentic claim to faith. So let's read that together, these five verses that are packed with so much truth. It says this in chapter 19, verse 38. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Wow! He went to Pilate, the Roman authority, and asked him for the body of Jesus because he knew Pilate was the only one who could release his body. It was Roman custom. You know what Romans did? They just left them out. They let them rot in public. They let the buzzards pick their eyeballs from the socket of their skull so that everyone who walked by this path, and as I told you last week, this was a popular and familiar path. These people were coming into the city by the groves this time of year. The Romans would just leave them out there as an example. But here Joseph of Arimathea petitions Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. What a statement by the apostle John here. He gives, he gives Joseph of Arimathea a compliment here. He says, he was a disciple of Jesus, though for a time. We're going to see. It was only for a short time. For a time, he was a secret disciple, but he was a disciple nonetheless. And he was secretly a disciple because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. There we go, the man from John chapter 3, John chapter 7, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. John wanted you to know that again. Why? Because this is not at nighttime this time. That's why John put that in there, so that you would understand. This is somewhere between 3 and 6 o'clock in the evening. They are hurrying so that the sun does not go down and the next day start because they knew that that started the special Sabbath. They had to get Jesus into this grave. And so we see these two who once paraded around in darkness so that no one would see, and, and one who secretly was a disciple and follower of Christ, all this behind the scenes, now they're open in broad daylight, walking to a place that everybody in the town is talking about. You remember that? You remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, encountered those two men? And he acted as if he didn't know what had been going on in the city, and they just basically accused Jesus, are you ignorant? Don't you know that the one who we thought was the Messiah as they traveled the road to Emmaus, don't you know about this? The whole town knows about this. And so these guys going out into the same town right after it happens in open broad daylight, something has changed with these two men, and I want you to see that. Nicodemus accompanied Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, you can do a little research in your 
handy-dandy Bible dictionaries, and you can find out that myrrh was not something that you could come by very easily, and it came at a great price. That's very important to this narrative that we are looking at today. So he brings with him about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. I find this kind of interesting and kind of ironic even, that man fell in the Garden of Eden. And man's redemption is seen here in another garden, in a borrowed tomb, as Jesus died on a cross and then is being placed in that borrowed tomb to resurrect all who will believe. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. He said, we're running out of time. We have to put him here, and we have to put him here now. So we look at this text, and we break it down, because I want you to look at it in light of the fact that we can conclude, or hopefully you will conclude with me, that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as Scripture says, were true followers of Christ. Though, granted, they had a very slow start. How many of you, don't raise your hand, are true followers of Christ who had a very slow start? My prayer for you this morning is that you not settle for that slow start any longer. We're going to see this being portrayed in the lives of these men, and, and they give us an example of what true faith does truly look like. So I want you to write this down as we take notes, as we examine this text thoroughly. Number one, true faith will not remain in secret. True faith will not remain in secret, though it starts in secret. Do you know this? God does a secret work inside of you when you were born again that no one can see. So all of us really start with a secret work of a sovereign God inside of us. And there's that work that has gone on, obviously, in these men. And that work, though it may start... A secret. It will never remain a secret. Well, think of it, if you would, as that person who plants that seed under the soil. It seems for a moment as if that seed is gone. But we know this. There is a germination process that is happening underneath that ground, and eventually you will see. You remember when you were a little kid and you got to do this in school? You took that seed and you put it in soil, and several days nothing happened. You just kept watering dirt, hoping that that seed was really still there. You came back that next day, and there was that one little sprout of green coming up out of that cup, and you rejoiced, and you said, man, it is there. It is alive. So understand, though these men started slowly, obviously there was a seed that had been planted in them, and they did not remain in a secret state. God was doing and had done a work in them, because no matter how fast or how much you grow, Inevitably, if you are in Christ, you will produce fruit. We're going to see these men begin to produce some type of fruit. And it's very exciting to see. Why? Because true faith will always become public. True faith will always become public faith. There are some of you here today who you have there at your seats, maybe there at your home, surrendered your life to Christ, and you've not yet made that public. You can't settle there as a true believer. That is continuing in secrecy. That is continuing in darkness. You must realize that true faith will become public. It doesn't mean we'll all become public at the same time. It doesn't mean that you're going to get saved today from, from a crazy life of sexual immorality and drug abuse, and, and immediately you're, you're going to be uh, some type of a saint uh, helping orphans and widows. But it does mean this, if God has rebirthed you, you are a new creation in Christ. And there is something that has transpired, and you will ultimately be changed and become public about your faith in Christ. Think about it for me, if you would. Just in light of what we've seen already, these two men at one time only had a secret faith. They were afraid of what all of their religious cohorts and all of their comrades in Judaism, they were afraid of what they would do or say to them or about them. Now, can you imagine? These guys have watched who they thought was an innocent man. In fact, Nicodemus defended him. And we know Joseph was a secret 
disciple of his. They have watched him be brutally murdered on a cross by the same people that they know they are going to be persecuted by for ministering to Christ. But yet now at this phase of their life, they do it anyways. These two who were once secret followers of Christ are now going to serve Christ publicly in open daylight, unashamed, for all to see. Please pay attention to that. It's so important in seeing why John would include Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in this text. Joseph is even going to petition Pilate for the body of Christ. Can you imagine this one who was once a secret disciple of Christ because he was afraid of what the other Jewish leaders might say or think? Now he goes to the Roman authority who he just watched have the authority to turn someone over to be crucified. And he says, sir, can I have the body of Jesus of Nazareth? What boldness has transpired here that wasn't there before? Here in broad daylight, going to Pilate, asking for Christ's dead corpse. Well, I think of the example of Peter here. Well, how can you not be reminded of the example of Peter? In John chapter 18, he denies that he is a follower of Christ at all. We're going to see as we study John out that he's going to be restored, proving that he truly was of the faith. But then we see him in Acts chapter 2. One who once denied that he even knew Christ. Just days later, standing at the southern steps of Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, he preaches a message about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he's empowered by the Holy Spirit and thousands of people are saved and baptized. We think about the transition and the change that Christ truly brings. You will not remain in secret even if you start there. You start in fear and apprehension. Oh, I don't know if I can tell anyone that I'm truly saved. You will. And he will see to it that you do. You are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And what is the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Boldness to be a witness. Boldness to be a witness. People want to argue all the time, what is the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Well, according to Jesus, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power to be my witness. So you can't remain in secrecy and in silence as a true believer, just as Peter didn't. And then we see the example of Saul of Tarsus, who we know became Paul. He once tried to stamp out Christianity from the earth. And then after he was sovereignly reborn, there on the road to Damascus, the apostle Paul spends his entire life unashamedly proclaiming the truth of Christianity, the gospel. Just as he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all, everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul was changed, and he began to understand those things. We see Joseph changed here, asking Pilate for the body of Christ publicly. Because true faith will become public, and true faith can't remain private. Why? True faith can't remain private because the Lord commands differently. The Lord commands differently. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, tells us this. You're familiar with light and darkness. You hear about it quite frequently. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Why is he saying this? Because he just gave them a lesson on this. It doesn't make any sense to take a light or a lamp or a lantern or a candle and put a basket over the top of it. No one's going to even see that. It's, it's, it's really ridiculous to even think that that would be something that you should do. Yet Jesus gives another lesson, and his lesson is this. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and that they may glorify your Father in heaven. There's a change that is going to happen in the life of a true believer. Here we see that change, not being able to remain private. They had to come out of the secrecy. They had to come out of their private following of Christ. They had to publicly follow him. Why? Because they also knew this, I am sure, about what Mark says. Mark says this in his gospel as he records the words of Jesus in chapter 8, verse 38. Now I want you to think about this because this is often not even talked about in modern Christian circles. 
But he says in chapter 8 of verse 38, he says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let that speak to you today. Why can someone who is a true follower of Christ not remain a private, secret follower of Christ? Because Christ himself says if he does, he proves that he isn't. If he does, he proves that he isn't really a follower. Here, he wasn't ashamed. He went right to Pilate and said, I need the body of Christ. Why? Because we're going to see why in a moment he wanted to honor him. He wanted to worship him. He wanted to pay the respect that he's due. True faith can't remain private. True Christians will eventually, openly, and publicly profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. The Lord, speaking here, says this, Whoever acknowledges me before men, that's public. He says, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I want you to pay attention to that. Because I know this, there are many of you who have made secret professions of faith. You have sat here week after week and you hear the gospel and some of you have believed. You are a disciple of Christ, but you are a secret disciple. Why? Because you've not yet publicly identified with him the way that he says to in that baptismal tank as we participate in baptismal ceremonies here at this church. Why? Because we believe in believer's baptism, and what believer's baptism is, it is us saying that we identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ publicly. He is our Lord, and He is our Savior, and we don't care who knows. So my prayer for you is that if you are one of those, you won't settle for being that secret disciple, because if you can settle and there be no conviction, may I insert this to you? It could be that you're not a disciple at all. Because these disciples, though they started secretly, could not remain private in their faith. They had to step out. They eventually did. That's why it thrills me on our baptismal Sunday to see people who come forward. They invite their family. They invite their friends. Why? To profess Christ publicly. That's what it is. It's not a ritual. It doesn't save you. Christ saves you. But if you're truly saved, your baptism is to say, I publicly profess Christ as my Savior. And you invite the church. Hold me accountable. Hold me accountable. True faith can't remain private. Write it down. Oh, many people in error. You've heard it. I've heard it. We've seen it posted on social media. My relationship with the Lord is between me and Him. It starts that way. But it will never remain that way. If you truly see Jesus for who he is, you will scream his name from the mountaintops. You will not apologize for following the King of kings and Lord of lords. You will want everyone that you know to hear the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us remember this. As we often forget, just because you haven't come forward publicly doesn't mean that you're not truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm encouraging you today with the truth. Come forward publicly. Why? Because that's what true disciples of Christ do. We have to take into consideration something here. It's not our job to decide who's a true follower of Christ and who's not. I can tell you this right now. That is far above this preacher's pay grade. I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. He knows those who belong to Him and those who don't. And so we have to be very careful as Christians. In fact, I gained great insight from one of my favorite books that I have ever read. And it's entitled The Bruise Read. And it's by a man named Richard Sibbs. And let me just go ahead and tell you this. You won't find it on modern Christian bookshelves. Richard Sibbs, in that book, he highlights what Isaiah teaches in Isaiah 42, what we read in our scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 42, in reference to the Lord, it says this in verse 1. Here is my servant whom I, uh, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nation. And he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, and he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope in him. 
Matthew chapter 12 tells us who that is. Matthew chapter 12, in reference to Jesus, in verse 20, it says just exactly what Isaiah said. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. What that is saying is this. He knows those who truly belong to him. And he knows, though at face value, they look worthless. They are a crushed reed. You can think of this if you would. And you're walking across your lawn and you step on a blade of grass and it breaks. Is it still a blade of grass? Of course it is, but it is a crushed blade of grass. Or you can think about this in your flower bed. You have some rosebush and that rosebush gets crushed by a storm. And what do you have to do? You have to then stand that rosebush back up. You have to prop it up. You have to nurture that thing back to health. He knows who really belongs to him. All of us, we know, in a sense, are crushed reeds. We've been crushed by sin. We've been crushed by life. And I'm thankful that Jesus, or broken reeds, and I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't crush us. He doesn't just see us broken there on the ground and just rub his feet into us until we're completely cut off. No, what he does is he raises us back up and he nurtures us to strength. And if you're in Christ, that is going to happen. God is going to do that. What is he talking about? About a smoldering flax. He's talking about a wick on a lantern. If you're old enough, you know how that works. That wick, when it begins to burn out, it begins to smoke, heavy black smoke. And you know at that point in time, what do you have to do? You've got to turn the wick up a little bit, and you've got to blow on that wick so that that fire will ignite and so that now that will produce light. Now, Jesus, the one who calls us to produce light, does not snuff out the smoldering flax. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick. Why? Because there is a sign of life there. What is that sign of life? It is the smoke that is coming from there. And you learned this in elementary school when the firemen came to visit. If there's smoke, there's what? There's fire. And we understand that, that all we need now is breath. And as the Spirit breathes in and through you, as he did in the lives of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, now what happens is these guys who were once afraid of everything and scared to take a stand, Jesus didn't snuff them out. He didn't say, well, you should have taken a stand back there, you, you worthless people. No, what he did, he knew that their faith was genuine. Why? Because he is the one who brought them to faith through the new birth. And he knows that their faith, though it is weak, it is real. Some of you here today have weak faith that is real. I would encourage you, grow up in the Lord. Spend time studying the Word of God. Spend time going to Bible studies. Spend time fellowshipping with other Christians. Spend time praying. Why? So that smoldering wick will begin to spark. And then from that spark becomes a little flame. And then from that little flame becomes a big flame that ignites the whole living room and can light up the whole area. Isn't that what we're called to do? To be light in darkness? Don't settle for secret, private faith. A true believer never will. That's not the purpose that Christ has for them. His purpose is not to crush the broken reed. His purpose is not to snuff out the smoldering flax or the smoldering wick. His purpose is to stand that bruised reed back up to health and to growth and to the glory of God. And his purpose is then to ignite that smoldering wick. And I pray this. I pray after hearing this today that you are ignited with the power of the Holy Spirit confirming that you are truly a follower of Christ. So we see these men, true followers of Christ. We see their lives showing that. Once, secret followers who paraded around in darkness, pretending not to serve Christ. But here we see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus moving from secrecy to open and bold faith, going and petitioning Pilate for the body of Christ. And then not only petitioning him for the body of Christ, doing something for Christ. So true faith will not remain in secret. Number two, a true faith will result in personal sacrifice. Watch what happens next. True faith is going to result in personal sacrifice. It always does. Verse 39 tells us this. Nicodemus, the one who accompanied Joseph of Arimathea, the one who had came and visited Jesus at night, now brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Nicodemus is seen here bringing a costly amount of myrrh and aloe that was used to anoint dead bodies. And he's bringing that, not for 
some religious leader of the day to honor them. He's bringing that to Christ, the one who he encountered in the darkness, who now he's not afraid to walk with him in the light. He was once scared to approach Jesus in the daytime, and now he gives evidence of his love for Christ by his own personal sacrifice. Could it be be that the conversion, the rebirth, God's sovereign regeneration that Jesus talked with him about in John chapter 3, could it be that this is coming to fruition here? That there has been a new birth, that Nicodemus is not who he once was. All evidence says he's not. He's no longer hiding the fact that he's publicly sacrificing, taking his own expensive possession. And he's going to use that to anoint the body of Christ. What a picture this is that we must see. True faith requires a cost. True faith requires a cost. That cost, as we know, it comes in the form of sacrifice. In fact, Luke chapter 9 in Luke's gospel, verse 21. I want you to read that with me, but verse 21 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He told them about what was going to happen. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus was letting them know what was going to happen. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must. Would you please underline that in your Bible? He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Personal sacrifice. Personal suffering for the cause of Christ. For whoever wants to save his life, verse 24, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? True faith will result in personal sacrifice. True faith requires a cost. Though true faith is free and it is freely given, there is a cost. It will cost you Everything. Everything. Luke chapter 14. Jesus, speaking of this again, verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa, wait a second. He's saying, yeah, love me more than anything. Love me more than everything. Love me more than your own family. Love me so much that in comparison to my, your love for me, it seems as if you hate your own mother. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot, underline that, he cannot be my disciple. We see here Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, obviously disciples of Christ, sacrificing for him, giving up their own personal possessions for Christ. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, he says. Will you not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if it's enough money? What is Jesus doing here? (coughs) He's simply teaching what is so often forgotten in the true gospel. He is teaching that we are to count the cost. What is it going to cost? It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you to sacrifice and to be willing to sacrifice everything for Christ. And watch what happens here. This is exactly what happens in the life of Nicodemus here. He personally sacrifices at great expense for Christ. Personally, sacrifices. These men putting their own lives on the line, putting their own status on the line, putting their own livelihood on the line. Why? Look at it in its context. To minister to Christ. They have been moved from secrecy to sacrifice. That's always where you will be moved, from secrecy to sacrifice, giving up your life for Christ. This type of Sacrifice is an example and is proof of true faith. And so we have to ask ourselves, is my so-called Christian life a life of sacrifice? Is it? Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote this. He, He said this, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have. And think enough, a cheap Christianity that offends nobody and requires no sacrifice which costs nothing and is worth nothing. It costs nothing and is worth nothing. 
That's what so-called Christianity without sacrifice is. We know that if we're going to define true biblical Christianity, we must define it with sacrifice and suffering. True faith requires a cost. Not only that, true faith resembles Christ. True faith resembles Christ. What am I saying by that? Did Christ offer up personal sacrifice and suffering? Did he? The answer to that question is an obvious yes. Then why do we in American Christianity think that we can be obsolete from offering up sacrifice and suffering in our life? It's because we really don't understand what Romans chapter 8 teaches us. Romans chapter 8. Oh, we all know 28. We love to cling to that. But don't cling to 28 without going to 29 and 30 and reading on. When we get to 29, we see something very interesting. Romans 8, 29 says this, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is He saying here? He's saying this, that if you are truly in Christ, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, where would we all be if we took the personal sacrifice out of the life of Christ? Therefore, stop trying to take personal sacrifice out of the Christian life because then it becomes no Christian life at all. It becomes American easy believism and a free ticket to heaven. That's what's being sold to so many people. We see by this text, that is not the case. Nicodemus brings a sacrifice. Though it's sadly forgotten in our modern church era, sacrifice, the giving of time, the giving of talent, the giving of money, it is required. It is the duty of all who profess Christ. It's not optional. If it's optional to you, you need to see if your faith is really authentic. Nicodemus here, once a Secret follower of Christ. Now he's openly sacrificing for Christ at great expense, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe that he brings. This could have been the anointing oil for his own burial, maybe the burial of his wife or his children, maybe the burial of his father or his mother that he was saving. He gave personal sacrifice back to Christ. What a great example we see here through this act of Nicodemus. We see him sacrificing the cause and the will of God and the cause of Christ ministering to Jesus out of his own pocket. It is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of suffering, sacrifice of giving. It is the sacrifice of submission. We must see in our lives. He is submitting. He is submitting to Christ, no longer caring about what everybody else Oh, many of us in our young Christian lives, we cared about what everyone else thought. Isn't it liberating to grow enough in Christ to not care about what everyone else thinks, but to care mostly about what God thinks? To care about what He thinks, and what is my standing with Him, and am I honoring Him with my words and my thoughts and my life? Because He knows everything. You see the sacrifice of submission here, just as Christ submits to obedience to the Father in his death by going to the cross. We see these men submitting here to Christ. Oh, they're not submitting to any command that Christ gave here in their lives. But because they are now true believers, they are honoring God above everything else. Jesus says it best in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And one of those commands is to honor the Lord. They're honoring the Lord. Oh, Joseph and Nicodemus, seen here in this text, beginning to personally sacrifice for Christ by giving true evidence of their faith. I want to say this, and I don't say this to offend anyone. I say this so that you might be set free this morning. I say this so that you might hear the words that come from my mouth. A claim to faith that never develops into a willingness to sacrifice is a dangerous and a potentially false claim. I say that, why? So that you will examine yourself this morning. Not to cast doubt upon you. I don't want you to doubt. I want you to leave here today knowing that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior and to never doubt that again. But you can't come to that assurance if you don't first examine yourself. Examine yourself in light of what we're seeing here. 
Is there a willingness to sacrifice to Christ? Is your faith being displayed by that willingness to personally sacrifice and endure for Christ? True faith shows that it will. Remember, we're looking at two changed men here. They wouldn't have sacrificed anything for Christ. In fact, they didn't want their friends finding out just days before this. And now here they are. God doing a work in them. And they say, we don't care who finds out. We're giving Christ. So true faith, as we have seen in our first verse, will not remain in secret. The next two verses, or the next verse, excuse me, will result in personal sacrifice. And then the last verses, 40 through 42, true faith will rightfully honor the Savior. It will rightfully honor the Savior. Watch how they honor Jesus here. Verse 40. It says, as taking Jesus' body, the, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. I want you to stop there for a second. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. They gave Jesus full burial rites. I've done enough funerals in my life to have the privilege of doing the funerals of veterans where we stand in some type of veteran cemetery. They are given full honors as one who has served our country. I've heard the 21-gun salute as my heart pounds out of my chest knowing they're receiving full rights as one of our veterans. I've heard taps being played in the background as that flag that once draped that casket is now being perfectly folded so that that soldier can take it to that wife or to that mother in that situation. I've been there. And it's nothing like seeing someone honored in that way. Now what they do here is they honor Christ in such a way as if it was one of their own family members. As if he was the highest of one of their religious friends. They gave him full Jewish burial rites. Don't miss that in this text. They did for him what they would do for their dearest loved one, they gave him the proper Jewish burial according to their customs. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. They didn't leave him out in the road. If they didn't care about Jesus, they would have just left him out in the road. Note to self, those other two criminals, they were probably just left out there for the buzzards to devour, for the people to continue to mock. Not Jesus, because these men held him in high esteem. So that the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Why? Because it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, the one who was now openly following Christ. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So true faith will hold Jesus in high esteem. Look at the esteem. What a display that these men give toward Christ. Did you know this? the majority of the people there on scene dishonored and mocked Jesus. In fact, it was in accordance with Isaiah 53, verse 3, that says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The majority esteemed him not, but not Joseph of Arimathea and not Nicodemus. Why? They were true followers of Christ. And it's evident here. They were not going to have their Savior dishonored. They took the time, but we must take the time to highly esteem Christ. What an expression of honor. What an expression of love. True believer though he will not be perfect in honoring Christ, and though she will not be perfect in honoring Christ, their heart will be to honor Christ and hold him in high esteem. When I look at young men who surrender to preach or who feel like God is leading them to teach something, there's one thing that I always look for above all things. I don't look to see if they're smart. I don't even look to see if they're knowledgeable at that time. You know what I look to see? Do these men hold Christ in high esteem. Do they hold Christ in high esteem? Because the most important thing in preaching the, the Word of God effectively is to hold Christ in high esteem. You see these men honoring Him. The true believer will 
honor Christ and hold him in high esteem. True faith will hold Jesus there. Not only that, true faith will humbly serve Jesus. True faith will humbly serve Jesus. This service that we see these men doing here, taking these strips of linen with this anointing oil, wrapping the body of Jesus, and then burying him in that tomb. It is an expression of love and worship. Don't miss that. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. How do I know these men have faith in Jesus? Because they're showing their love to him. They're holding him in high esteem, and they are going the distance to humbly serve him. You see them doing that here. Oh, to say that we love Jesus without humbly serving him by our actions is to lie to ourselves and to lie to everyone else. These men, lowering themselves, knowing that they're going to be ridiculed, persecuted, and, and could even very well die. But it was worth it to them to humbly serve Jesus, knowing that they would lose everything potentially. John chapter 12 and in Mark chapter 14, we see something very similar to this happen. Don't forget that. You remember John chapter 12, I'm sure. But in John chapter 12, we know that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was anointing Jesus with, with expensive oil, and it was called nard. And we learned about that when we were there, how this was a great expense, and how she was probably saving this for some special occasion, but yet she poured it on the Christ in honor of him, to show him her love and adoration. Folks, that is worship. How do we show our love and adoration for Christ? Serving Him, ministering to Him, ministering to others in His name, for His name's sake, and for His glory. The only difference between Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and these men, the only difference is this. Mary anointed Jesus before His death, and these men are anointing Jesus after His death. Both of them are proof of faith expressing itself in love and adoration to Christ. Their service is nothing less than true worship here. Don't miss that. How do I know that these men are true believers? Look what they're doing here. They're expressing their faith and love and service and worship to Christ. May I say this? True faith will always come to a place of humbly serving Christ. Perhaps today you're not. You say, I'm not serving Christ anywhere. Here's what I want you to do. Examine yourself. Do you truly have faith? And if you do truly have faith and you come to that conclusion, I would say to you this, why are you not serving him? Because you're only saying that you love him, but you're not showing that you love him, and that is not worth anything. Why? Because Paul, as I will remind you, said that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Are you expressing your faith in love for Christ and love for others? True faith will be expressed in that way. Are you honoring Christ by serving Him? Again, true faith will rightfully honor the Savior, just as these men did. Just as these, did men risking, these men did risking their life, risking their livelihood, risking their status, risking potentially even their family, they risk it all. Why? Because they truly had faith in Christ and they truly Loved him. So what do we do with this as we wrap this up? What do we do with this? I would say great information. No, I would call you this morning that upon examining both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in light of John's gospel here, to concur with me that these men, as most scholars would agree and church history would agree, these men were truly followers of Christ. Despite their slow start, Despite even their secret start, these men finish well. And don't you know this? Aren't you thankful that it's not how you start, but it's how you finish? Because I can tell you this, in my Christian life, I didn't start very good. I didn't have anybody pouring into me and discipling me, as many of you do. Be thankful for that. See the value of that. As those people pour into you and as they disciple you, watch yourself flourish in the Lord and give Him all the glory for it. But maybe today you realize this. Upon seeing this, you realize that there's really no true faith in you at all. You have no desire 
to see these things that we saw in these men's lives come to fruition. You're just going through the motions, hoping you make it to heaven. I have sad news for you. You've been deceived. You've been deceived because you know what Satan loves to do? Satan doesn't necessarily love to talk you into not believing. He loves to talk you, talk you into believing something that is not true. And then when you believe in something that is not true, you then live your whole life in false assurance thinking that you have something that you don't really have. You say, Kirk, that scares me. It should. Because he is crafty in doing that, isn't he? We have seen evidence today of two men, both of these men, at one point in their time, were ashamed to follow Christ in public. They were secret followers of Christ. One of them came at night, had a conversation with Jesus, hoping no one else would find out about it. The other one, he was a secret disciple of Christ, but now they both come out in the open. And here they are demonstrating for us what true faith looks like. Do you have that true faith in your life? Perhaps you've come to the conclusion today that you don't. I would say this to you, repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Cry out to him that he would save you this very day. If he is opening your eyes to see that truth, he is opening your eyes to see that truth, so you will call on him to be saved. Call on Christ today and be saved. Surrender to him as your Lord and Savior. and Repent of your life of wretched sin. But Maybe today you come to the conclusion that I, I am saved, but I've never really grown to the point in faith where I openly and boldly profess Christ. I want to ask you this question. Is there a desire inwardly that you would come to that point? Oh, because that's what I want to know. Inwardly, do you have that desire? Because it's real easy after that. If you have that desire, I can point you to every Bible study you need to go to. I can point you to every ministry that you can serve in. I can teach you whatever it is that I know, which is not much, but I will teach you everything that I know so that you can grow in the Lord and so that you can, though you were once that smoldering wicks, that smoldering flats, you can now be that, that, that flourishing fire that lights up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I guarantee you this, I'll walk the road with you because I'm thankful for those who walk the road with me. But you have to come to that conclusion. Is there evidence? If there is, it's real simple. Submit yourself to sound doctrine, to sound teaching. Submit some time to prayer. Submit to God in obedience in your life as you learn these things. And watch. Watch as your life is transformed before your very eyes. Your life is transformed before the eyes of everyone else. Just as we see in the lives of Joseph and Nicodemus in this text today. Who at one time were not willing to admit that they were followers of Christ. But as they grew and as it became more and more real to them. And that's what I ask you. Is it real to you? As it became more and more real to them, they were then willing to risk it all in service and sacrifice and love and worship and all the things that we see displayed in the lives of these men today. For those of you who know you're saved, but you haven't grown up and you aren't attempting to grow up in the Lord. Search yourself today. Examine yourself. Make sure that you really are saved. And then I would say this. Submit yourself to what the Lord has commanded you to do, to do, and that is to grow up in the Lord so that you can unashamedly live in boldness for Him. You can unashamedly present the gospel. People say, well, I want to share the gospel, but I don't know how. We have evangelism training two times every year. Sign up. We will show you how. That is why we're here. Well, I want to learn more about the Bible, but I just don't know how. We have a Bible study at 9 o'clock, a Bible study at 11 o'clock. While these services are going on, get involved in enriched Bible study. Learn, grow. Men come to me, I really don't understand the Bible. Well, I want to know more about it Thursday night. When we're having men's Bible study. Get here. You say, well, I don't understand a whole lot. You won't when you first start, but when you're done, you will. Why? Because he's going to take that smoldering flax, and he's going to breathe wind into it. You're going to then be a little spark, and then you're going to be a little flame, and then before you know it, you are going to be a light in the darkness just as Jesus has called us to be. Why? It is His will for those who are truly His followers. So would you examine your life this morning as we close? As we have seen a demonstration of true faith after the death of Christ, during the burial of Christ, displayed by two men, would you use this to be challenged this morning. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. It is so rich, so meaningful. Lord, it is such a guide for us to see, to 
examine, to walk in righteousness, to know you more, to see your characteristics and your attributes, to fall deeper in love with you. Lord, I pray for that believer who's here today who maybe has spent some time in secret belief that today they would be driven to fall deeper in love with you to a point that they openly, boldly profess Christ in everything that they do, that they would submit themselves to teachers who are gifted to teach them, to disciple them. God, I pray for that one who is here today who does not know Christ. I pray today that you would graciously offer them salvation, that you would graciously offer them forgiveness, that you would open their eyes to see their need for you, that they would be born again, and that they would believe and be saved this very day. And I pray now that your spirit be free to work as we yield in obedience to you for your glory. And we pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness. Thank you.